This is your Thursday Daily Delivery. I am Michael Rand. Plenty to get to today. We'll have Lavelle Enil III joining me in just a little bit, columnist from the Star Tribune, talking through some Twins off-season news, the Major League Baseball lockout, um, part of that discussion with Lavelle, and Vikings playing uh, tonight against the Steelers in a very must-win game. Got Lavelle's thoughts on Mike Zimmer, Rick Spielman, what Lavelle witnessed in Detroit on Sunday, whatever that was exactly. So good conversation with Lavelle. You won't want to miss that. Also be joined by Gophers volleyball setter Melanie Schaffmaster. Gophers play Baylor in the round of 16 on Thursday afternoon. Should be a good one. Both those teams played each other earlier in the year. Baylor won in a very close four-set match. Good insights from Melanie Shaftmaster, so I hope you are interested in that as well. But first, what did I miss? Gophers men's basketball team, Timberwolves, both played on Wednesday. Both teams lost home games. That they lost isn't necessarily surprising. Gophers were going against Michigan State, a high-quality team. Same goes for the Wolves playing Utah, a very high-quality team, but it was how they lost that told a certain story. And I want to start with the Timberwolves. Wolves lost 136-104. to Game was close for the first half, not particularly close after a run by Utah early in the second half. And after the game, interestingly, Anthony Edwards talking about Carl Anthony Towns and how he needs to go faster when he gets the ball so that opponents can't double-team him. And basically, Utah has started using this defense that the other teams in the league are copying where they don't necessarily use their center to guard him. They use you know, the power forward to be the primary defender on him. In this case, for Utah, it was... Rudy Gobert over to double team him you know Rudy Gobert one of the best defensive players in the league more on that in a minute um and other teams have kind of copied this uh, where you don't have to really account so much for the Wolves power forward who has typically this year been Jared Vanderbilt sometimes it's been Josh Okoge you know guys who aren't necessarily offensive threats and and Ant is saying you got to go faster cat you got to don't wait for the double team catch the ball and go because you've got a defensive mismatch when the other and when the opponent is not using their best big on you. And within that was, you know, seems to be some message like, come on, cat, you're the best player. Do this thing. And it, it's another example of Edwards kind of taking charge of this team. He's telling Cat at halftime, you gotta do this, you gotta do that. A second year player telling a seventh year player what his deficiencies are, what the team needs out of him. And it's just interesting. I want to play the Edwards clip right now just to, just so you guys can hear it with your own ears. I told him at halftime, like, you waiting on the double. Like, you telling him, yeah, come double me. Now it's like, you're the best player, best player on the floor. They take you out of the game. You know what I'm saying? Like, then when they double you, they not rotating. They stand with me and making everybody else beat you. So... I just told him, like, you got to go quick. Like, if you watch, and I told him this, like, you know, I told him this. I'm like, if you watch Joel B play, you have to double Joel B. Like, there's <laughs> nobody in the league that can guard him. So, he goes quick. Like, you can't double him because he catches and goes quick. Like, so I told Cat, like, you catch the ball and, and you're holding it. Like, you're waiting for the double, like, telling him to come double me instead of just catching it and going. Like, they can't guard you. 
And I told him, like, it's disrespectful for them to put number 44 on me, bro. Like, that's disrespectful. So, yeah, he he, he know. He know he got to kill all of them. Like, he best playing on the floor every night. He got to kill them. I don't see this as like a schism or anything like that, if we might use that word from the Vikings past. Um, it, it is interesting, though, to, to hear Edwards say that, to, to him for him to be urging Towns on in, in that kind of way. And we'll be interesting to see how Towns takes that feedback. And by the way, uh, Edwards and Patrick Beverly both run in their mouths a whole lot about Rudy Gobert and how Gobert didn't guard Towns and how they don't necessarily fear Gobert. Um, you know, for a team that just lost by 32, that uh, that struck me as a little bit odd, maybe just blowing off some steam, whatever they were doing, trying to feel good about themselves. But that part of it felt odd. The part about Cat going faster on double teams absolutely makes sense and will be a key for this team going forward, no doubt about it. Yeah, as for the Gophers, they just, you know, the, the talent deficit showed up on, on Wednesday. They, they won their first seven games this season. They've been a really good story. You know, had Eric Curry on the podcast on Wednesday, played a quote from Ben Johnson talking about how this can't be the highlight of their season, the 7-0 and start. And I think he sincerely believes that, and I think there will be more wins ahead. I think we've seen enough from this team that they will play hard, that they will play with energy. They did that again on Wednesday. There's going to be some nights where they are outclassed in terms of talent, and I think that happened pretty obviously on Wednesday. Now, how they bounce back, that'll be the question. They've got to play Michigan next. Michigan will definitely have the talent edge, but when the when the Gophers play more similar or at least less talented than those two teams in the Big Ten, can they, can they put together enough wins to make this season interesting as it goes along. I, I, I'm a believer more than I was certainly at the start of the year that they can do that, but we need to see it play out as the season goes along. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake for 24-7 gaming, fun restaurants and bars, and luxurious hotel rooms. And join Club M to bask in the rewards. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Happy to be joined today on Daily Delivery by Melanie Schaffmaster, Gophers Volleyball Setter. Just named All-Region uh, as of uh, not too long ago. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. Yeah, excited. Uh, it's an exciting time for the whole program right now. You guys are headed to Madison, and you'll be there for, you know, facing Baylor in the in the Sweet 16 of, of volleyball. A foe you've played already this year, just... Let's start with the, the match itself and kind of the anticipation of that going into it. Yeah, I think uh, first and foremost, we'll be like every other match we've played so far, we'll be focusing on ourselves and worrying about what we can do on our side of the net to play as best to go for volleyball as we can. And I think it is maybe a tad bit more exciting since we did play them in preseason at Wisconsin already and we lost. So I think obviously that was early September into August and our team has grown a lot since then so I think that's a little bit of an exciting factor that we get kind of a rematch at the same exact place but I think we're more prepared and I think it's the same preparation that we've had for the Big Ten season so far so you say you've grown a lot since then in what way I think our team like chemistry has gotten a lot better and we've learned how we all operate better together and what we actually need to focus on instead of worrying about who we're playing or like Obviously, worrying about the scouting report, but knowing your assignments and how that can affect 
our connections on the court, I think, mm-hmm. is overall a lot better than when we started at the beginning of the year. You committed to the Gophers, I believe, as a eighth grader. Is that is that right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, a while ago. <laughs> how did how did you know at that age? I mean, I think a lot of people like go through the recruiting process, maybe commit when they're a junior, even a senior. You're like, I'm an eighth grader. I'm a really good volleyball player, and this is where I want to go. Even though you're from Indiana, how did how did that happen? Yeah, so I mean, the recruiting process started kind of really early for me, I guess, like probably seventh grade. Into seventh grade is when I had like a pile of letters and I just knew I wanted to play in the Big Ten because growing up playing at Montana, like all the people I looked up to and stuff like that played in the Big Ten and at the time it was still the best conference like it is now. And I was like, if I want to go and play professional or try and be with the USA national team, then I need to play in the best conference in the country. And I had my options. I did not want to stay close to home. So I was like, sorry, mom and dad, I don't want to I don't want to be close to home. I don't know why. I just felt like that. And then I had a couple of visits and then I contacted them and I was like, I really am interested in you guys. And I started talking to Hugh and Laura and Matt. And then they set up a visit and I came here and I just like, I literally like couldn't stop smiling. So then I talked to my parents about it and I came back up here and I was like, might as well. (laughs) I know I want to go here and I don't think it's going to change. So I was just like, might as well be done with everything early. And it was just a lot easier at that point. That's, I mean, that's great. And you've come here and the experience has been really good so far, I would imagine. Has it kind of lived up to what you hoped so far? Yeah, it definitely has. Even in COVID, I'm still playing Big Ten volleyball under Hugh, Matt, and Laura. And I'm still training with some of the best athletes in the country that are not only good athletes, but great people. And I think it's just overall, it's exceeded my expectation. And I've still only been here for two semesters. <laughs> Have you always known you wanted to be a setter? Because, I mean, you're, you're fairly tall. You're 6'3". That's tall for a setter from what I, you know, I'm not a volleyball expert, but you know, I've watched enough of it to know setters don't tend to be the, the, the tallest players on the court. How do you – has that always been your position, and how did you gravitate to that spot? Yeah, so, I like, earlier when I was playing volleyball, I think it was like 12s or something, our setter got hurt, and they just kind of threw me in there, and I was like, okay, I'll just do this, and then I think – after I got thrown in there, other pieces of the puzzle for our, like, younger club team kind of fit better. So I just stayed in that position as, like, me and my friends kept going up, being on the same team throughout the years of Munciana. And then I ended up growing. So it just happened, kind of. So you, were, you weren't that tall when you started that? No. How, how, like, how much did you grow? I think, in, like, 6th to 7th grade, probably between 6th and 8th grade, I grew, like, about a foot. Like, I, I was... Yeah, and then I haven't grown that much since, like, freshman year of high school. But, I mean, you're 6'3", so you, can, you don't have a whole lot more to grow, yeah. right? So, yeah, I'm perfect height right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> just going to stay here. No. no, again, like I said, I'm not a volleyball expert, but watching volleyball and just watching the setter work, I've always gotten the impression that it's a little bit of art and a little bit of science to kind of spreading the ball around and kind of knowing where to go with it. It's, it's moving really fast. How do, you, how do you describe the position that you play? Yeah, I think it's a lot of, I mean, I think obviously you need skill to do it, but I think maybe I'll do 40% skill and then 60% of mental ability to know what's happening around you all the time with all your people. Because when I first got here, that's what I struggled with in the spring and it got better in the spring and it's gotten a ton better in this semester. But I think being able to allow yourself to know you're not going to make the right decision every single time is probably like a hard part because 
yeah, you're in this position right now on the court, but this is the only ball you can set. It might not be like the best decision, but that's, that's all you have in the moment. And so, I mean, all you can do is go back and watch film and be like, Hey, I should have went here and here. And then probably another really big part of being a setter in this conference at this level is like preparing before the match. I talk with Matt all the time and we normally know like which blockers are on, who's been on at practice all week, like hitting numbers, blocking percentages and stuff like that. So I think setting is a lot more mental than people give it credit. And it's a lot of preparation before, like before even you actually play the match. That makes sense. And do you think, I mean, do your friends and stuff, do they understand how complicated what you do is? Yeah, I think we all have like our own definitions of complicated because if I was trying to be Jenna, I would not be able to do anything she's probably doing right now because I've never been a hitter and I think if she tried to do what I was doing it would be just as hard so I think it's I think they understand it's difficult but I think what they do is difficult so I mean it's I think all of it's difficult but it's like a, a variety of definitions with that I think you guys swept Stanford to get to this point obviously like we talked about Baylor you played them earlier this year it was really competitive and you guys have grown since then could be you know, you don't want to look too far ahead, but it could be Wisconsin after that if you win this match. What are, I mean, as you're thinking about tough opponents and just how you guys are playing, what are some of the keys for you this weekend? Yeah, I think, um, as always, it's going to be focusing on our side and connecting with each other and understanding that a point is a point. No point is worth three points and no point is worth a half point that we need every single one to win the, this game and the, hopefully the rest of the games we end up playing in the next couple of weeks. And I think obviously understanding and following our scouting report and just being disciplined and clean if we're talking about actual volleyball piece of it, not just like our mental and team connection side is going to be a huge key against Baylor on Thursday. Melanie Shaftmaster, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Now, I thought that was an interesting glimpse into a setter's life from uh, Melanie Shaftmaster. I really enjoyed chatting with her the other day. Gophers play Baylor 2 p.m. today, and that is on ESPNU if you have that channel and are interested in watching. Winner advances to potentially play Wisconsin with a trip to the Final Four on the line, so that would be something. These regionals in Madison, so that would be a home game for the Badgers should the Gophers get past Baylor and should Wisconsin advance as well. Wisconsin plays UCLA in the other uh, regional semifinal today, so interesting good good great program the Gophers have they, they get this far a lot can they get any further this year a lot of it will depend on what happens with their offense today happy to have Lavelle Enil the third back on daily delivery Lavelle how you doing I'm doing awesome how are you I'm good I bet you're doing um better now that you're not in Detroit I know the Vikings are better now that they're not in Detroit but you were there Sunday to a witness you know I've talked about this I feel like it was stunning yet predictable I feel like Vikings fans saw that game coming kind of all week um, but still a a loss to the previously winless Lions I want to get your thoughts on that and some twins thoughts too but you know like I said let's start start with the Vikings and just you know being there what you know and what what was (laughs) what, what were your takeaways from you know, being in that moment and, and watching everything unfold. Yeah, it was uh, pretty disturbing. And, and Mike, you've been in these press boxes during these events where we're sitting there trying to make sure we're not stepping on each other's toes about the angles we're writing for the next day's paper. So, you know, we're in discussions in the fourth quarter about 
what are you going to write when the Vikings win? So I was going to write um, that you have to take a victory anywhere you can, can get it and just get the hell out of town sometimes. That was going to be my angle because look at the Vikings. We're going to come back and win that game. When um, Cousins hit Jefferson with the pass, I thought, okay, they're going to win. Um, who knew that the lowly Lions are going to drive down the field, have two plays in which players should have been kept in bounds, but they got out of bounds. And then Zimmer is afraid to pull the trigger on a blitz um, once he got in the red zone. I mean, if Monty Kiffin's coaching the Vikings, he is sending three, four, five guys because his belief was when you're in the, when you're defending your red zone, you have a smaller field to cover. You should be more encouraged to blitz instead of dropping eight in the coverage. And um, I just thought that was a tactical blunder by the coach's part. And then you, then you also are asking Cameron, Cameron Dancer to play coverage skills, which he's not good at. If anything, you should have blitzed Dancer just to keep him away from screwing up in the, in the, somewhere in the secondary. But oh, so, so then I had to change my angle, which I wasn't happy about. Um, and I just arrived at the conclusion that that was a type of game that gets people fired. And I'm not just talking about Zimmer, but I'm also uh, talking about Spielman who has presented Zimmer, this roster. And I think this started two years ago when they gutted the defense and Zimmer's had to try to deal with young inexperienced players like Cameron Dantzler ever since. So um, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how the Vikings finish up this season. They have five games. They're probably going to need to go four and one to finish nine and eight and be a playoff team. And if they don't, and there's a good chance that they won't, um, the Wolves are going to sit back and, 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 and think about how the season's transformed. You can say everybody has injuries, everybody has slumps, but good teams find a way around this stuff. And they almost got swept by the Lions in the season series because it took Greg Joseph to hit a 53 or 54 yard field goal at U.S. Bank Stadium to walk off the Lions in. So, um, this the tentacles from this loss are all over, all over the place. I agree. Um, I, I like the sentiment that that's the kind of game that can get people fired. You've you've been around. You know, you've covered the Twins for more than two decades. You've got experience covering other teams. You've been around. You know, teams outside of baseball, obviously, before taking on this columnist role. But you know, you, you the team you've been around the most is the Twins, and you've seen. Really good seasons and really bad seasons from them. What I'm curious about is you talked about this Thursday game that's coming up against Pittsburgh, which is another opportunity to be resilient. But this team, at a certain point, teams do sometimes run out of resiliency. What what, what kind of Vikings team do you think we see Thursday? Have they emptied the tank so much that they can't fill it up again and try to rally one more time and get themselves in the playoff race? Or is this... Uh, or is this a team that that will be remembered as you know still more resilient and and able to kind of dust themselves off again? Well, I know that Mike Tomlin is getting some pats on the back um, about um, about how he's got the the Steelers in contention. I've watched them play two or three times this year, and this team can't be had. Okay, uh, the Bears and Justin Fields put pressure on the on the Steelers at Pittsburgh a few weeks ago. And I think that was a uh, that was a Thursday night game. I think so. And um, so the the secondary is vulnerable. The Vikings should be able to have air superiority over the Steelers and throw the ball down the field, which Zimmer has actually encouraged Kirk Cousins to do so. They will have a few players back in the lineup. Patrick Peterson's off the COVID list. 
Barr and Kendricks both were full participants in practice yesterday. Um, so they're going to have some reinforcements in that lineup. So um, this, this, this team's primed for a response on Thursday. And I, I, I kind of expect them to win um, at home against Pittsburgh. What if we don't see a response? What if they, I mean, they, they've, they've had some of these, you know, dead man walking games before. I feel like yep. game against Indianapolis a few years ago where they'd kind of gotten themselves back to the brink of the mix after some disappointment. They just got absolutely humbled in, in that game. Um, you know, the, what if what if they go out and lay an egg Thursday? Are there? Would you say Ben Gessling on Axis Vikings said he doesn't think any changes would be imminent that they would ride out the storm? Um, but you can also see the the case for sending a message, especially since the next game isn't until a week from Monday. Um, it, it depends. It depends what um, what the ownership group, the Will family, believes needs to be fixed on this squad. Um, if you need to make wide sweeping changes and gut the entire coaching staff and look in the front office and look at Spielman, then that's something that probably should take uh, place during the off season or maybe the day after the regular season ends. But if you just think that Zimmer's the issue, then you know if they if they lose on Thursday, then you know maybe you have a reason to call Zimmer into your office a day or two later and have a difficult conversation with him. But I, I do think the Vikings' problems are deeper than Zimmer. Um, I think there's issues with Kubiak, the offensive coordinator. Uh, and I, like I said, Spielman should not be absolved from any blame here. So uh, if I, if, if the Vikings are going to make changes, I think it's going to be more sweeping than just, uh, just sacking the coach. I think it's going to have to be deeper than that. So, but I think Thursday's game is pretty big. If I'm an owner, I want to see how they respond after losing to the worst team in football. Uh, and if, I, if I'm not satisfied with that response, then now I'm shortlisting guys to replace multiple people. It feels like this season just never really got fully on track. They've just been kind of chasing all sorts of things from the beginning of the year, whether it was, you know, training camp uh, mm-hmm. injuries and, you know, the COVID stuff with Kirk Cousins, and then they lose their first two games. They've always managed to kind of steady themselves and get back to 500 a couple times, but they've been kind of chasing this season kind of from the jump. And it feels a little bit, you know, as we think about it in retrospect, it feels a little bit like the 2020 2021 twins season as well when they just got off to that bad start and could never quite fully recover let's transition a little bit to twins talk right now because you know they they made a couple of moves right before the lockout they signed dylan bundy um move i'm not a move i'm not high on at all they signed buxton to an extension which i think was a really good decision i want to get your takes on both of those moves and kind of the standstill that we're at right now, now that this lockout probably is going to be here for at least a couple months. Well, Dylan Bundy had some shoulder problems last year and he had a six ERA. And in my mind, um, I would not count on him until he comes to spring training and proves that he's healthy and can pitch effectively because the arm is good. I mean, he can touch 97 with his fastball and he's got a really good slide. And those are things, those are tools to work with. And he's a guy who could be, someone who is a good mid rotation starter, or maybe a number two guy. Um, but I, I don't, I'm not going to believe that Dylan Bundy exists until he proves it to me in spring training. Um, I think it's very disappointing that the twins did not get involved in some of these other free agents that signed around the league. I thought Marcus Stroman would be a really good fit for them. He is kind of like Jose Barrios in which he has no off season. He's always working out. Um, he's been durable and he's been an effective pitcher. 
and he would be worth 23 million a year over four years, whatever he got from the Cubs. Um, you know, some of these other guys you could look at and say the Twins could have went after like Kevin Gosman or someone like that, but I think there's a couple of guys they should have jumped in on harder. So now um, what disturbed me is that Derek Falvey came out and said, we're actually looking more toward trading for starters than signing him. And I said, okay, well, that's, that's concerning here because you had a group, you had a flock of decent starting rotation guys available in the free agent market. I think they should have taken a harder look at some of those guys. And now it's going to come down to crafting a trade. So it looks like some good prospects are going to have to be packaged here to get a quality arm. So I don't know how they're going to, to me, they need to add three more starters uh, in addition to Bundy because you can't get through a season with just a five-man rotation. You need eight or nine guys to get you through a season. So um, I, I, I'm curious to see what they're going to add from this, this point on. Uh, as for Buxton, had to be done. I was skeptical that the Twins were going to sign him uh, once talks broke down at the trade deadline because I thought offering him seven years and $80 million was an insult. Um, but what I underestimated was Buxton's desire to stay with the Twins organization. And when you have a player who's willing to do that, you always have a chance of reaching a deal with him. And the Twins came up with a creative way uh, to keep Buxton in, in the Twins uniform. Uh, I'm not a fan of uh, bonuses tied to BBWAA votes. I wrote about that last week. Um, but, you know, from the Twins' point of view, it got the deal done. So bravo for them for keeping an a immensely talented kid in their lineup. I want to circle back on the pitching, too. I mean, you said three more starters, and I agree with that because – if the, the other two you're penciling in have no body of work. I mean, Bailey Ober and right. Joe Ryan look good at the end of last year, but that was all we've seen of them in a major league uniform. Like, guys regress all the time after their first initial burst. Yeah, and, you know, you've got you got a crop of arms. You've got Josh Winder, and you've got Yom Duran. You have Jordan Balazovich, Kyle Sands, Cole Sands, I'm sorry. you got a bunch of guys who are at that double-A, triple-A level who could – contribute at some point during next year, but you're not really sure. And I hate to bring this up, but if Balazovic and Yon Duran continue to have injury setbacks, they are not going to build up the endurance to be a starting pitcher. They may have to end up moving to the bullpen because I don't think either one of those guys have thrown 130, 140 innings in a year. I got to go look it up, but I don't think they have. And that's concerning. Um, So, yeah, yes, the Twins have some young, promising arms, um, but I would not count on them. I wouldn't count on them to be my first seven or eight pitchers in my pecking order as I'm trying to put together rotation. And let's not forget, everything the Twins did last year in terms of sem- assembling rotation backfired on them in terms of you know, Shoemaker and J.A. Happ. And who saw Maeda getting injured? That was unfortunate. Um Man, I think we're gonna. We may have. We may be have to prepare for the return of Michael Pineda. The way things are going, which would be okay. I mean, he. You kind of know what you're getting there. He's been, when healthy, he's been a pretty good pitcher for them, or at least you know a, a, a guy that you can pencil in at that. You know, number three, number four spot. He's not number five star. He's better than that, but he's certainly not top of the rotation either. And you know, final point on on that. I mean, they can't do anything now because there's this lockout, and that you know it's coming at a bad time for them because they need a lot of help. It's going to be musical chairs once this lockout ends as far as uh, teams finding players and players finding teams. I don't know who has the advantage in that in that mess, but it, it's going to be crazy once they, uh, they do sign a deal and understand, figure out what rules of engagement they're going to play by 
in terms of free agency and compensation and things like that. And it's going to be a while, Mike. I, I got a feeling that this, this lockout's going to go into late March and we're going to have a delay to the start of the regular season. Ooh, that would... The players are dug in about how they want things to change. They're upset that the, the average salary has gone down. They're upset that um, a player making the minimum salary five years ago is took home more money than the guy making the minimum salary last season. Um, I think they're only getting 40%, 47% of revenue when it used to be 52. So they, they've got, um, they've got an ax to grind and um, they got this uh, lead negotiator named Bruce Meyer who is combative. He's combustible. He's acerbic and it's not going to be pleasant. So I think this is going to take a while. Final thought, a little bit more pleasant guys who played when, the money wasn't uh, quite as good as it is now. Tony Oliva and Jim Cott both elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in through the uh, you know the, the committee that kind of goes back and takes a look at maybe some guys that were overlooked by you know Hall of Fame voters um, you know in, in the regular vote. Just your your thoughts on that process. And you, you, everybody loves Tony Oliva, but what what do you what do you know? What what are your memories or thoughts of, of Tony as, as you've known him over the years with the twins? Well, I, I have to imagine, I never, I never, I didn't know him as a player and I wasn't in the clubhouse when he was a player, but to me, he had to be like the ultimate chemistry glue guy because he's always smiling. He always being positive. He always pat guys on the back. Uh, I was telling a story yesterday about uh, Carlos Gomez at bat practice, just spewing um, profanities in English and Spanish. Uh, during batting practice because he wasn't making solid contact. And Tony, you know, going around the cage and putting his hand on, on Gomez's shoulder, trying to get him to calm down and tell him you cannot hit if you're upset, you know, <laughs> and, and just try to calm him down. And I just think, you know, um, Tony had to be one of the greatest teammates ever just because of his demeanor and, and his positivity and his ability. And he was a fantastic hitter. His eight years, his first eight years as a player were rather remarkable. And uh, his ability to make adjustments, in-game adjustments, uh, a bat to a bat, he would open up a stance, close his stance. If he was fishing, if he was facing some guy who threw hard, he would, you know, he would uh, open up to the opposite field and just hit the ball the other way. You know, he wasn't afraid to do that. You know, he was a very smart, cerebral, intelligent hitter, and um, I- I'm glad he's getting his day in the sun. And it's the same thing for Jim Cott: sixteen gold gloves, durability. Was twenty five and twelve one year, won two hundred and eighty three games in his career. Um, you know, just a model of professionalism and one of the best uh, analysts in the game. Um, his ability to articulate the game is second to none, and I'm thrilled. It's just amazing how five years ago I was at the winter meetings when um, sitting there waiting to hear the results of the um, the vote on the uh, by the veterans committee, and they said two players. Missed it by one vote, Dick Allen and Tony Oliva. And like my jaw dropped. I didn't know that Tony was going to get that close. And Cott missed it by two votes that year. And that's the last time they were voted on until now. So uh, Cott gets in, Tony gets in, and Dick Allen still misses by one vote. So um, that's that's really interesting. I also have to get a shout out to Buck O'Neill, who I knew from my days in Kansas City, um, former Negro League player, manager, the first African-American scout in Major League Baseball history. As a scout, he signed Lou Brock, Lee Smith, and Joe Carter. Wow. Um, his uh, contributions to the Ken Burns documentary, Baseball, uh, were second to none. 
um, just loved and revered across the league for his ability to tell us the story of Negro of the Negro Leagues. And he is definitely a treasure. And I wish he was still smelling the roses so he can kind of take his victory lap after uh, being voted in. Absolutely. That's a great point. A, a wonderful uh, Joe Poznanski book on Buck O'Neill as well, The Soul of Baseball, yes. um, that I read a number of years ago. And that was not so my introduction to him, but really kind of brought home what he meant to the game. So great points there, Lavelle. Great points overall. As always, love to have you on the show. Let's do this again soon, okay? Absolutely. Good catching up with Lavelle. And that brings me to the cooler, by the way, talking Vikings with Lavelle at SK underscore TPC. Saw this tweet the other day. Apologies if it's been somewhere else as well. Uh, For what it's worth, barring any setbacks, Thursday will be the first time Michael Pierce, Dalvin Tomlinson, Eric Kendricks, and Anthony Barr will be playing together in a game. Much needed against a team that has a very good rushing attack. Time to see these boys eat. Wow, that I hadn't really thought about that in that context, that they've been missing those guys um, in, in tandem. It really does influence their run defense, the middle of the field. We'll see if that makes a difference against Pittsburgh. Not every team can expect perfect health, but having all four of those guys on the field at the same time can't be anything but a boon to the Vikings in a must-win game. That'll do it for me today. Chris Hine will be on Friday's show to talk a little bit more Timberwolves, and very much we will talk Vikings on Friday's show coming off that Thursday game against the Steelers. Thanks for joining me here today. I'm Michael Rand. We'll be back at it on Friday. 